morning. Scripture reading comes from the New Testament, book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Continuing with our reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. The word of the Lord. Well, a few years back, uh, my friend and colleague, Lisa Orris, whom I think many of you know, uh, she and I went on a retreat through the covenant with eight other covenant pastors. And it was in Tucson, Arizona. It was my first time really ever spending time in the desert. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But I will tell you that regardless of my expectations, it was like nothing I had ever experienced before. I think I've been to... I don't know, 44 or 45 different states in the U.S. I've lived in two different states. I've lived in two different Canadian provinces. I've traveled around North America, Central America, South America, the Caribbean. I've been to a couple of countries across the Atlantic. So I know that there are people in the room who are far more traveled than I, but I feel like I have seen a respectable amount of places in my life, which means I have seen a variety of landscapes and biomes. So on this retreat, as our caravan drove further and further and further into the desert, when I say that I have never seen anything like that before, I really mean it. Once we got out of the van and started walking around a little, Lisa made the comment that it felt like we had landed on an alien planet. And it had. I absolutely recognized nothing. The ground was a different color than I had ever seen before. The plant life was wildly different than anything I had ever seen before. There were animal sounds I had never heard before. It was a type of heat I had never experienced before. Everything about the desert felt foreign to me. And that was just in the first five minutes. We each had our own little private rooms at this retreat center, and we had about a half hour to kind of settle in before we had to meet up. I spent that half hour unpacking and doing a little writing, Lisa, however, spent that entire half hour reading the manual. What manual? I asked her when we met up. There is a manual of the desert in your room and you need to read it, she said. I'm not going to read a manual on the desert, I said. And then Lisa proceeded to tell me about all of the poisonous or dangerous plants and animals to watch out for. 
And she was especially concerned with this animal called a javelina. Are you all familiar with this? Oh, okay, it wasn't just me. Okay, I'd never heard of this before. Appar this is for you, Vanderweids. <laughs> okay. Javelina. Hairy, stinky desert pigs. Look out for them. Lisa made sure to tell me that when javelinas feel cornered, they will charge at people with their canine teeth that are bigger than any other North American predator. To which I responded, then don't corner one. <laughs> she took the desert manual very seriously. I did not. Guess which one of us ended up in the hospital on that trip? It was not Lisa. The desert is such a unique place. That's a story for another sermon. I've, I've told it before. If you haven't heard it, come talk to me afterwards. The desert is such a unique place, and, and that's just the desert that I have seen in Arizona. I can't even imagine what the deserts must look like in Africa or the Middle East. Maybe some of you have seen it before. What I do know is that they are hot, that they are dry, that they are quiet, unless you corner a javelina, and that they are exceedingly expansive. And so it's no wonder, it's no wonder that God uses the desert or the wilderness in some of the most meaningful passages in all of Scripture. And so this morning we are beginning our Lenten 2020 series called Lessons from the Desert. While some of the stories that we're going to tell during this season will literally, they literally took place in the desert, we are also using the desert as an analogy to speak of specific times or seasons in our own lives that parallel that, those dry, quiet moments of life. Experiencing a desert or wilderness season of life is not fun. These are often times when our faith feels dry or God seems silent. We feel lost or maybe as if we have been wandering aimlessly for a long, long time. But through these stories, our hope is that we will remember that while desert seasons are tough, all is not lost in the desert. Which is why I love that after Lisa lectured me about the dangers of the desert manual, our first stop on the retreat was to walk into their chapel, which was beautiful. It was made of all natural materials, and right on the wall in the middle of the chapel was a verse from the book of, of Hosea. And it's where God says, I will lead you into the desert, and I will speak to your heart. Because the truth is that while the desert is a tough place to be, when it comes to our faith, there is much to be gained from our time in the desert. And there are ways in which God speaks differently or we hear God differently in the desert than we do in other times in our life. It was true when Jesus was here on earth. It is still true for us today. So this morning we are going to look at our first lesson from the desert, which is what do we do with temptation? So we're not really easing into Lent. We're just, gonna, we're just going all in. We, uh, we live in a culture where temptations flood our lives. I know that I don't need to tell you this. We are tempted by physical, tangible things like nicer homes and nicer cars and nicer clothes. We're tempted by money and food and alcohol and pornography. We're tempted by complex things like relationships and sex. We're also tempted by more nebulous things like worry, laziness, distractions, procrastination, and power. Temptations are everywhere, and yet the ease with which we come by them isn't really even the biggest problem when we face, that we face when it comes to temptation. I think that the biggest problem that we face with temptation is that we live in a culture that tells us simply to give in. You want to buy that stuff you can't afford? 
No problem. Here's a credit card. Just pay for it with that. You're in the mood for sex? Just go for it. Regardless of the complex spiritual or emotional pieces that come along with it, both inside but especially outside a marriage relationship, You'd rather spend a few hours playing a game on your phone or looking at social media instead of getting your work done? Eh, we're all doing that. Besides, there's always tomorrow to get your stuff done. You're tempted by power, regardless of the cost or who you hurt to get it? Go for it. Power, wealth, and fame? The American dream, right? Although, for that matter, power has been a temptation since the very beginning of time. The entire fall of humanity, in fact, happened as a result of Adam and Eve being tempted by a power that they didn't even know they wanted until the serpent first told them about it. The serpent said to them, do you want to be like God? Do you want to know all the things that God knows? Here, just eat from this one tree, just the one tree that God told you not to eat from. Eat from that and you will have all of the power that God has. And they ate. And giving into that temptation that day changed the course of human history. I heard temptation described as trading in what you want most for what you want now. Whew, how many times have we found ourselves guilty of that? Trading in what is ultimately more important for what feels good in the moment. Well, this past week as we gathered for our Ash Wednesday service, one of the things that we said about this season of Lent is that it's so important for those of us who follow Christ because, excuse me, it is our chance to walk with Jesus through his days here on earth, that we would have the chance to see Jesus' full human experience, that in seeing all that Jesus had to endure, we would recognize that we have a God who understands what it is to be human, what it is to experience the vast array of human emotion. He doesn't just know it because he's our creator, he experienced it because he was here as one of us. This is evident in our text for this morning. So I had Robert read this story from the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark is not really known for much detail. What Robert read from this story was really just an incredibly shortened version of what happened, and we're going to elaborate on that a little bit more now. What it says in, in Mark, as Robert read, was, at once the Spirit came to Jesus out in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And then that's, that's kind of it. And then it immediately goes into the fact that after those 40 days, Jesus went to Galilee. Mark doesn't really tell us anything that happened during those 40 days, and so we're going to use a different text that's going to help us find out a little bit more of what happened during that. So if you want to follow along, we're actually going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 4. There are Bibles in front of you. Feel free to use the apps on your phone, or if you'd rather just listen, you can do that as well. So Matthew 4 has so much more detail about what happened in the desert. So Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God led Jesus into the, the desert to be tempted by the devil, meaning it was God's plan. It was God's idea that Jesus not only go to the desert, but that God would deliberately allow Jesus to be tempted by the devil or the tempter or the accuser. It says in verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So scripture probably didn't need to clarify that after not eating for 40 days that Jesus was hungry. But scripture does clarify that, and I think it's particularly good that it does. Why? Because we are not known to make great decisions when we're hungry. 
especially when we're hungry and tired. In fact, just to prove that, in case your own life is not evidence enough of those poor decisions, look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Do you remember that story? Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. Do you remember the decision that Esau made when he was tired and hungry? It's from Genesis chapter 25. This is what it says. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. We don't really talk a whole lot about birthrights anymore, but it was everything. It was everything in that culture. It was his entire future. I mean, think of the dumbest decision you've ever made when you were hungry. At least you didn't give up your birthright, so you've got that going for you. All that to say, we are not our best selves when we are hungry and tired. So Jesus is hungry and tired after 40 days in the desert, and it says in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's a pretty good one. Jesus is hungry, and there is Satan right there to remind him not only how hungry he is, but who he is. You're the son of God, and you're hungry. Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. Problem solved. You are the son of God. You're entitled to a little bread when you're hungry. And Jesus quotes back to Satan an Old Testament text in 4.4. He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Meaning, no matter how hungry I might be, you cannot tempt me to give up the thing that matters most for the thing that will feel good in this moment. I will not trade God's plan for me because of some hunger pangs. So Jesus faced and passed his first temptation. But Satan had another one right behind it, starting in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And it's so interesting because they had a bit of a walk together, Jesus and Satan, and I really wish somebody would have written that part down, but they didn't. But they walked from the desert to the highest point of Jerusalem. It would have been some kind of hill, some kind of cliff in the southeast corner of Jerusalem that overlooked the entire Kidron Valley, and it would have been many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet up. And Satan tells Jesus to throw himself off a cliff. Now, I realize that doesn't sound like a temptation to most of us, but the devil's point in this temptation is that you're Jesus. Throw yourself off the cliff, and then you'll just get up, shake the dust off, and continue walking. And man, won't that prove something to all of the people who doubt you. So that's why it was a temptation. And if that's not bad enough, Satan has the gall to quote scripture as, to Jesus as his defense. In verse 6, he says, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
What he's doing is basically taunting Jesus at this point by reminding him using this text that God has promised to take care of Jesus, to protect him, to look after him. So if that promise is true, then Jesus can do anything he wants to his physical body and God will just protect Jesus, right? And to that, Jesus quotes scripture back to the tempter, saying in verse 7, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not test God. Do not use God. Don't try him. Don't barter with him. And this is honestly something that we probably need to talk a little bit more about in today's culture because I think it's something that many of us have done. God, if you'll just give me an A on this test. If you'll just give us a snow day. If you'll just get me out of this situation. If you'll just make this person love me, every day I'll go to church. I'll start praying. I'll, I'll become a nun. Whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want, God, right? But I love this. Andy Stanley talks about this. He says, if you're a Christian, the moment that you begin to try to manipulate God, the moment that you try to look for a formula, in that moment you are no longer practicing Christianity, you're practicing magic. Your religion has become a superstition. Yikes, right? Because we've all done that, right? I don't know who we think we are that we can bribe or barter with God. Or more importantly, I don't know who we think God is that he can be bribed or bartered with. He doesn't come to us as a king who wants bribes. He comes to us as a father who freely gives his children all of the good gifts that God has to offer. And here we are trying to barter for his affection, this affection that God gives so freely. Who do we think we are? Don't test God. Don't use God. It's an important lesson to us. So Jesus passes his first two tests, his first two temptations. But what about his third and final one from the desert? And this, la this last temptation is a pretty huge one for Jesus and for us today. Again, the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain and you can just kind of envision them standing there overlooking not only all of Jerusalem, but just as far as the eye could see. Maybe they could even see Jericho off in the distance. It says, starting in verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Everything. I'll give you everything all the power, all the wealth, all the cities, all the towns, and all of the people within them will be yours. And you have to wonder if Satan, Satan didn't choose that particular moment to remind Jesus that that's what he came for anyway, right? All these people, all these kingdoms, isn't that why you're here? I'll give it to you all right now. Isn't that what you're doing here? Satan says, I will give you all the power and all the wealth, all the people and all the cities that you will ever need. If only you will bow down in this moment and admit that I am entitled to give it to you, entitled that I have the power to give it to you. You are entitled to all of these things. It is yours for the taking. Can you imagine if somebody came up and tried to offer that to you right now? It's all yours. All the wealth, all the power, all the fame, whatever it is that you want, you can have it. You can have a summer home and a winter home. Heck, you can have a spring and a fall home too if you want it. You never have to think about money ever again. You'd have so much power that your opinions would be the only one that matter. You hate what's going on politically, don't worry. Everyone's going to listen to you from now on. 
So that's the offer that is before Jesus, everything. He can have everything. And I know, I know that we, we struggle with this concept because we know that Jesus is fully God, so we don't see this passage as much of a struggle for him. But Jesus was also fully human, which means that he felt and struggled with temptation in exactly the same way that we do. He had the same desires that we do. He had the same ability to give into or resist temptation, just as we do. So what did Jesus say to his final temptation in the desert? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Away from me, Satan. I mean, on the one hand, if you listen to nothing else, you should just walk out of here using that line. Girl Scout cookies, away from me, Satan! (laughs) Not to the Girl Scouts. The cookies. Right? That really super nice set of golf clubs, away from me, Satan. That attractive neighbor or co-worker, away from me, Satan. What, why? Why did Jesus give this all up? Why would he say no to having everything? He refused the devil's offer because Jesus did not come to take over the world. He came to take away the sins of the world. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came into this world not to be king of an existing kingdom, but to usher in a brand new kingdom, a kingdom like that nobody had ever seen before, where everyone who was first is now last and everyone who has always been last will now be first. He flipped everything on its head to create a kingdom whereby we would have to work to make a choice not to be selfish, not to give in to temptation, not to trade the most important thing in life for the thing that happens to feel good in the moment. He came to teach us that we can make decisions that are not about what we want or what feels good now, or even decisions that are about us at all. He came to teach us that this new kingdom means making decisions that benefit other people above ourselves because that is what he did for us. And I love the way that Andy Stanley puts this. He says, do you know what hung in the balance? Do you know what hung in the balance of Jesus' decision to resist temptation? You. You hung in the balance. And do you know what hangs in the balance of your decision to resist temptation? You. You hang in the balance because when you live life for you, your life just gets smaller and smaller. And Jesus said, we have it written on our sign right now, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And when life is about you, it's not a very full life. He said, Jesus did not opt for the kingdoms of this world and it it made his life so big that he outlasted his own life. And so as we begin this Lenten journey, as we look at the lessons that are to be gained from this desert life, there's a question in Scripture that Jesus asks, and I think it's something he would ask us right to our face today. The question is found in a couple of different Gospels, and it's the question that I want you to walk away with today. It's the question that I want you to use as a challenge for yourself when you are faced with temptation this week. Whether you're tempted to cut corners at work or to spend money you don't have or to eat or drink or take things that numb your feelings 
whether you're tempted to go to that website again and download that content again or compare yourself on social media again, whatever it is that might tempt you this week, this is the question I want you to hear Jesus asking you. What good is it to gain the whole world if you forfeit your soul? What good is it to give in to a few moments of pleasure when you know that it only serves to make your life smaller and smaller? We may have the stuff we want or the feeling we want or the look we want or the pleasure we want, but for what? What good is it to gain the whole world only to forfeit yourself in the process? Jesus said no to some things so that he could give us everything. And that's exactly what he did. And so this morning we have the privilege of gathering at the table that he has prepared for us. This table that represents this upside-down kingdom where the last will be first and the first will be last. The table to which you are invited just as you are. But before I invite you to come forward, let's pray together. Lord, I'm so grateful for this text, as difficult as I know that it is. It's easy for us to just pass this off. It must not have been that hard for Jesus because he had your spirit within him and he was God, and so he must not have really felt the pressure and the pull of temptation in the way that we do. But God, I'm so thankful that you remind us this morning that Jesus was fully human, that that was part of what you did, that you chose to give up your power, that you chose to give up everything to put human skin on, that we would know that we have a God who has gone before us, that has experienced all that we have experienced. And so God, as much as we say it was easy for Jesus because he had the power of God within him, would you remind us this morning that we have the power of God within us? There's nothing before us that we cannot face because of your spirit at work within us. And so God, wherever we are struggling right now, whatever t- I know we're all struggling with temptations, And I know they all look different. But whatever it is, God, would you speak to our hearts right now? Would you forgive us of the times that we have given into temptation in the past day, the past week, throughout our lifetime? God, and would you stamp this day as brand new? That from this moment on, we have a new opportunity to say no. That every time we are faced with the thing that tempts us most, we would be reminded of that question. What good is it to gain the whole world? What good is it to gain that thing, that feeling, that moment, only to lose ourselves in the process? And so God, may we hand all that we are over to you and may we remember every moment of every day that there is nothing we can't accomplish with your power at work within us. And for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.